Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Before I get into the um, some of the topics from last week's requests, any questions about the meditation instructions or how to work with your experience as you're attempting to be present and friendly, merciful, to see clearly? your own mind and reality and to respond mercifully to it. I know the instructions are kind of simple, but the practice isn't so simple. It's, cha- it's very challenging. It's very uh, counter to our mind's tendency to not stay present and to think about the future and the past and to avoid rather than turn towards. Any meditation-based questions or clarifications about this technique? If you're at home and you have questions, you can just um, raise your hand in the Is it in the reactions or the participants? Reactions. In the reactions. Participants on mine. Please. My mind just starts playing songs and it just, some music wears me out. I don't know what to call it. Like, I was calling it like, I was trying to like name it like something. I don't know if it's planning or if it's, I don't know what it's doing, but mm-hmm. it's playing music. I think I'll call it. The question here is, um, or comment, it's a question too, about when our mind uh, starts playing music and there's that song that maybe it's a repetitive song and it's just the hook or maybe it's the whole song and then that's interesting to watch your mind and how much you indulge in it. And then I found myself sometimes going like, what's the next song on the record? And just kind of like entertaining myself, listening to music while I'm meditating and start rocking out. And so it's, and the question is like, uh, what do we do with that? What do we name it? Is it, is it thinking, right? It is a thought. It's, is it, it's a memory, right? It's actually a thought of, you know, something that our mind has remembered that we've stored and we're replaying it. It's, so it's, uh, on some level, it's a thought, it's thinking. Um, on some level, I've sometimes labeled it in, in my own practice as hearing, because it feels like I'm hearing the song. Like my mind is the jukebox <laughs> in my head is playing songs. Because I'm sitting here trying, I'm not thinking about anything. I'm, you know, I'm just sitting here, but my mind is playing music, and on some level, it feels like uh, it's hearing, like I'm listening to my mind, which has recorded, <laughs> remembered, 
this song or and uh, so sometimes I label it as hearing that song uh, and then I can sometimes tell the difference between that non-volitional arising right thoughts come out of nowhere where do thoughts come from I don't know out of nowhere out of your brain somewhere but they just arise and it's not volitional especially when you've told your mind pay attention to the breath be present here and your mind's like thinking about music thinking about food thinking about whatever you know plans memories but there's that moment of the non-volitional oh shit that song just came out of nowhere and there's a moment where you can choose am i going to feed it am i going to indulge in it it's kind of i love this song it's entertaining it's you can also take the second foundation of mindfulness and acknowledge okay it's the song it's pleasant but then after it loops a few times and it gets annoying and you're like that's i love that song but now it won't fucking shut up and now it's unpleasant or even worse if a song you don't like starts playing like why are the fucking beatles playing in my head i don't even like the fucking beatles but my dad played them my whole girl i know there's a lot of beatles fans but <laughs> my dad played them the whole time i was growing up so they're stuck in there and they play sometimes and then i feel lame like oh shit i know the lyrics to beatles songs unpleasant judgment love to pick on the beatles um so it's thinking it's hearing it's and then that you got to really look at am i indulging in it or can i really just like let it arise and pass and it might be a repetitive thought like a lot are but the more we can be in third foundation of mindfulness which is this is just arising and passing mental phenomena just thoughts appearing and dissolving and non-volitionally they'll keep doing that but often we are volitionally, intentionally getting involved and thinking. And this is like the key, the difference between non-volitional, unintentional thoughts arising and passing through the mind and volitionally indulging in our own thought processes, taking them personal and I am planning is different than I'm sitting here and the mind is planning. And I'm not so engaged in it, but it keeps doing it. Volitional on purpose. Are you intentionally on purpose doing it? Or is it just happening all by itself? So maybe the best analogy is your breath. Um, you can volitionally take deep breaths. I'm doing that shit on purpose, holding it on purpose. <sighs> blow it out slowly on purpose or my body just keeps breathing all by itself not volitionally breathing just non-volitionally my autonomic nervous system keeps making my body breathe same thing with your brain it just thinks all by itself but you can volitionally have deep thoughts or try to hold on to your thoughts like you try to hold on to your breath. But even when you're not volitionally 
thinking, keep breathing. It's not your fault. It's not, you know, it's just what the brain does. It thinks, plays music sometimes. But there's a choice. Mindfulness gives us more and more choice. How am I going to engage? Am I going to engage with what has arisen in my mind? Does that make sense? This is, it's a, good, it's a great question in that way. And you so say you can name it thinking or you can name it listening and come back to the breath if that's what you're doing then. Yeah, hearing. Yeah. Actually, yeah, um, that makes quite a bit of sense as we were going through uh, what kind of credence that we give that, well, whether or not it's a song or the inner monologue, because I know that one of my biggest difficulties when I do enter into my meditation and when I can try and calm my mind is my inner critic finds that the prime opportunity thinks it's just open forum. And having been putting those terms, like it, it's a song or something like that, I can I can't. I can just say, oh, I don't it's a song but having that same kind of presence of mind of whether or not I'm gonna let those that inner critic bear have those words bear away there is is thank you. Yeah. yeah. So that does make sense, absolutely. And it's the, it's the same practice. It's naming it, inner critic. Oh, there's the inner critic again, insulting me and insulting you and, <laughs> and comparing and you know doing all of the stuff that the brain does all by itself, not your fault. Well, you're not doing it on purpose. You're like Statler and Waldorf from the Muppets. Imperial <laughs> fraud. Yes. And, but the more we practice mindfulness, the more you have a relationship to Oh yeah, my mind does all of these, has all of these different personalities. And my teacher, Ajahn Amaro says like, um, you know, think of, there's all of those different aspects of your mind. You're like, you know, I like the image of the Muppets and it's like a table, like a board of directors, that inner uh, um, committee. And he says, part of what we're trying to do is not get rid of them or think that they need to, uh, but to make wisdom the chair. Rather than all of the critical voices and fears and, you know, have to go away. No, they have a place at the table. But make wisdom, discernment, the chair who gets to, you know, uh, decide on some level who's getting the real, like, airtime. <laughs> who's getting the gavel? Who's getting the... You know, because you don't want the, the wounded five-year-old to be running the show. You want wisdom to be running the show. But the wounded part of us has a seat at the table, too, of course. There was that awesome movie, uh, Inside Out, a few years ago. It was an animated movie about emotional intelligence and what happens when we throw away our anger. Or I think it was, I think it was anger that was getting sort of, or sadness. It was sadness that was getting... Um, Sadness has a place at the table. It's an important member of the committee. But wisdom needs to be, uh, you know, holding court and allowing the sadness, not that judging critical mind. You don't want to put that person in charge. We all have multiple personality disorder. <laughs> it's just what it's like to be a person. Please. Um, staying focused portion of it. Um, I've been able to tell myself it's interesting. It was a time to you know think about that later. And I think that's working for me. 
already done meditating, it's like a pick me up or pick me up or pick me up because I don't really want to think about it anymore. Or I'm like picking something apart 18 million different ways because now I'm quieting myself for a while. And then as soon as I'm done, my brain's like, let's talk about everything right now. <laughs> and that's that I keep getting, it's like a snapback. Um, and I don't know what to do with that. Um, make room on some level, just know like, okay, that's part of the process for you. And that there's, it probably will lessen over time. We'll see, you know, that might be, you might have to live with that forever. And that would be okay too, right? Like that's what we're doing. Like we got to learn to live with whatever is. It will probably lessen, but it doesn't need to stop doing that snap back uh, in order for you to be at ease. Your practice, our practice is like, I got to learn to be at ease with whatever my fucking mind is doing. Not I need my mind to be different in order to be happy. The reality is, the more you meditate, your inner uh, terrain, your inner environment, your mind's tendencies change drastically over the years. But a lot of those, you know, places, uh, seats at the table, although they're not as outspoken as they used to be, they're not running the show, they're still there and they're still going to comment sometimes. Yeah. Uh, a practical tip that I, you could try is uh, do a meditation journal so that after you sit, I do that. Yeah. Okay. Let those epiphanies, you know, get them out so that you're not ruminating on them and kind of going over them, like write it down. So yeah, set it aside. <laughs> yeah. It's useful. Thank you. That's yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring my journal with me. Probably. I think that's a better you can bring it in. I have a, a friend that has taught here sometimes, Jason Siff, and journaling is um you know one of the core he, he thinks that you should journal after every meditation and that a lot of our learning comes from reflecting on what just happened the epiphanies or the ahas or the in meditation and it's like a core respected technique to journal after you sit and kind of reflect on what happened and not only jason Sif, also if you uh like in some of the burmese uh, mahasi uh, sayadaw upandita sayadaw would ask people to, after they meditate, write down what just happened, everything, journal the whole thing. I sat down, I felt my ass on the cushion. My breath came in, my breath went out. I became aware of my hands resting in my lap. A thought arose. I thought about it for 17 minutes. <laughs> I realized I was thinking, I came back to my breath like really kind of tracking what is, and it's, it's interesting and you can gain some insight from that kind of precise journaling, cataloging. Yeah, it's a useful technique. David, please. Yeah, and just another note, I mean, I, um, I like to do a big mind dump in my journal before I meditate to, to just like get all my creative thinking, all my dream processing, all my, what am I gonna do today? What am I intentions? Day. just get all of that stuff in here draw pictures whatever and then i'm a lot quieter and then i do it afterwards yeah it's worth a shot all of this stuff is like experiment with journaling not journaling 
um, if you become addicted to journaling, let it go for a while and see how it is to just be with the, the mind, you know, without writing it all down. Like, it's... All right, well, let me get into Judy about this. Um, just to go back on, on what she had said. So the idea to, is to just accept that this is what's happening right now and that just that's just a moment right now and so be it. And that's when you get quieter. Is that how she's gonna get quieter? Is when she when she just accepts you out and like I, I still need, I don't know. Well, maybe just accepting things as they are in that moment. Yeah, as she's like waking up. Oh, this is the way it feels. Oh, I got to be okay with it. But well, um, because just to be a little, I'm going to be a little bit adversarial with you. You've been sitting with me for many years now, Judy. Have you ever heard me say that getting quiet is the goal? I don't think so. I mean, maybe, but I don't think so. I might have slipped once or twice. <laughs> but not necessarily being quiet, it's just uh, accepting it at that moment. Accepting it. At that quiet, loud, chaotic, peaceful, accepting this is what's happening right now. Am I going to suffer about it or not is the question. Right. Now, if, you know, peace as in, I'm not going to, I'm going to be at peace with it. Not, it needs to be quiet in order for me to be at peace. Right. I didn't mean at all to say that. Yeah, we don't, uh, we're not trying to quiet the mind. That's not what Buddhism is teaching us. No. It'll happen sometimes. You're, you know, you'll get super tranquil and that'll happen, but it's not the goal. The goal is how do we learn to not suffer about what's happening right now? When the mind is ruminating and the songs are playing and the emotions are present and reality and, you know, life is in session. <laughs> and just getting quiet in your concentrated state of meditation isn't going to teach you how to, right, deal with all of those. When you're quiet, there's, that's easy. We don't meditate to have, I don't meditate. The Buddha's teachings isn't about like, yeah, let's get super quiet so we can temporarily enjoy a pleasant experience. So that's, yeah, that's, I, I understand. How do we get free in the midst of, you know, and that having been said, sometimes, and I know when I started to experience some quietness, I was like, what the fuck is this? I don't like it. <laughs> This is unpleasant, right? And so then I had to learn, develop a tolerance for neutrality and for quietness and for tranquility because I'm a, uh, you know, I want it to be exciting. I want it to feel good, not quiet, boring. Can I share something? Sure. So you, you, you talk about that. And, and this last year during the pandemic, I've been traveling a lot, and I've been traveling a lot by myself, and one of the biggest things that I've heard you say to me that I was very unhappy with <laughs> is that you have to learn to be, you, you have to be okay with being bored and with being lonely. 
Oh my goodness. So I have, for this last year, have noticed where I have been bored, bored and where I have been lonely. And it's a great place to sit in. And I've learned a lot to accept me being bored and lonely. So this was a great year to practice that as I was traveling to the country. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I was glad that my teacher, Ajahn Amaro, uh, had, you know, I, I was teaching that a lot last year, right before the pandemic, because I had just sat with him and it was like a theme that he was talking about bored, low, lonely, hungry, and the importance of being uncomfortable and being at ease with it. And we all got a, a long uh, dose of that, all of practice, the opportunity to practice at least uh, two of the three, probably, if we allowed ourselves to. So the first question that I wrote down from last week was about um, safety, about um, how do we apply our practice, the Dharma, in situations where um, we might not be safe, where we might be feeling unsafe, or we might be really actually unsafe. Now, I want to talk about this a little bit from uh, two levels. The, and, and a lot of the times, the Dharma is um, both what's ultimately true but then what's, re what's also the relative relational truth. So uh, ultimately, there is no such thing as safety ever, anywhere, period. Ultimately, that is the ultimate truth. There's, there's no such thing as safety. If, you know, depending on what we're talking about, physical safety, no, no such thing as really being secure and safe. Like, I don't know, maybe some kind of bomb shelter somewhere, but even there, like just, there's no guarantee. There's all of the natural disasters. There's all of the human uh insanity, harm that we cause each other. Um, so there's, a, there's that saying, uh, the wisdom of insecurity. There's the, like the greatest wisdom is knowing there's no security, there's no safety, there's no thing to cling to as this is gonna make me safe and secure. Uh, whenever we're clinging, ultimately, right? I'm talking on that ultimate level. Uh, it's always a delusion, the delusion of some safety or temporary safety, right? Like the only time you can kind of look back and said, I was safe. <laughs> but in this moment, we don't know this building could just fall down right now, right? Like we feel safe in this moment, but earthquake, could, we're, in, we're in California. There could be an earthquake any second and not gonna be fucking safe in this brick. Well, maybe. <laughs> It's a pretty sturdy building. We might be. Who knows, though? Depends on, depends on how much magnitude and all of that, right? So there's those sort of wisdom of we're not really safe. 
But of course, we want to feel safe. And then on the relative level, it's like, you don't want to take this ultimate, we're not safe, and then turn it into like irresponsibility and be like, well, I'm not safe. So I just stopped locking my door. Because anything, you know, they could break a fucking window anyway, so might as well leave the door open. Right? Everything's impermanent and and uh, anyway, so just, you know, I, I started leaving the keys in my car. So you don't want to take that to the level of uh, irresponsibility and, you know, uh, kind of unintelligent uh, behavior. And on the relative level, of course, like we want to stay out of harm's way as much as we can. We want to stay safe as much as we can. We want to take the uh, use intelligence to be like, yeah, I should not, uh, you know, I shouldn't run across the freeway. That's you know, not intelligent. I shouldn't. Uh, I shouldn't leave my door unlocked in certain areas. It's not not smart to do. Uh, I'd make myself even less safe. Um, probably certain neighborhoods and times and stuff where I probably shouldn't go there by myself. Um, I know, you know, this was coming from a uh, practical um, question from somebody who lives in the neighborhood and saying like, you know, with all of the homeless people camped out in front of my, across from my house, from my apartment, um, and violence that's happening and, and um, uh, things being stolen, theft, and um, you're like, how do I, you know, maintain a sense of the way I was hearing is like, how do I maintain a sense of inner safety where like I walk outside and I don't feel very safe. And there's a way in which I'm not very safe some of the time. There's a, one of the promises in, do I have a copy over here? I don't have a copy over here. One of the promises of practicing loving kindness is that if you deeply practice loving kindness and you really train your mind to be loving and kind, that uh, you will be protected from um, outer harm. It says inner and outer harm. And some of you have heard me do commentary on this before where I'm just like, this sounds like bullshit. This sounds impossible. How could we ever not, how could we really be safe and protected from outer harm no matter how loving and kind we become, how compassionate, how awakened, it doesn't make sense. So the only way that I've been able to make sense of it is an inner safety that even if harm does come to us, even if we are attacked, harmed, earthquaked, whatever it is, lost, experience uh, loss in some way, that will have a sense of kindness, a sense of compassion, that um, we won't add suffering on top of the harm that we experience. We'll be able to meet it with kindness. There's also a, a teaching, a sutta, a phrase 
where the Buddha says, uh, was talking about loving kindness. And he says, if you really embody this loving kindness, if you really awaken to this, he said, even if you're attacked and the people are cutting off your arms and legs, uh, hatred will not enter your mind. Mm -hmm. You will radiate kindness and compassion for these poor, confused people who are creating such negative karma for themselves by sawing you up. Which is, this is, you know, come on. I love it as a goal, right? I, I feel like Buddhism is full of this shit where it's like, fucking impossible, but I'm going to keep trying to do it. I don't know that any of us are going to ever get there. Maybe, maybe that's a state of enlightenment. I don't have a lot of hope for myself having no thoughts of anger towards somebody sawing off my arms and legs. But I like the, the um, archetype of I want to try to meet all pain and all those who cause pain to me or with compassion, with forgiveness, with out suffering at them by hating them. The goal is to not suffer at what's happening. And it's a lofty fucking goal. But I like, I don't know how it feels to you. I mean, I think some people maybe get a little disillusioned or something like this shit's impossible. I sort of feel that way too, but I've been trying to do it for 30 years and I'm going to keep trying to do it because anecdotally, like when it comes to pain, um, you know, when I, before I started meditating, I really hated pain and was, you know, really needed to medicate, and, you know, get loaded and avoid and complain and you know, I would stub my toe and it would ruin my day. And, you know, I'd fucking hate my foot for three hours. And, and then the more I meditated and got some tolerance for pain and some understanding that we're not physically or emotionally safe in this world. Um, and that we're going to be criticized and we're going to be judged and we're going to, people are going to hurt our feelings and we're going to take it personal and there's going to be a lot of ouches along the way and a lot of, um, but the more I meditated, the more I said, oh, I can tolerate this more. And now I learned to be able to uh, stub my toe and say, I forgive you to myself <laughs> and to the pain. I, and I can soften to it and, and all of this. Oh, I'm not even safe in my own body, in my own house, walking down the fucking hall. <laughs> Stubbing my toe. Sharon Salzberg tells a story about, I've told it so many times, it makes the rounds. She tells a story, a story about how she's uh, in India. Have you heard this story? She's in India and she's, in a rickshaw going to see her teacher Deepama. And she's sexually assaulted in the rickshaw. Somebody, some man reaches in and squeezes her tits. And the, you know, and she said they, she gets away or whatever, but she's traumatized. She's just been sexually assaulted and and um, she goes to Deepama and, Deepa, and Deepama says, and she says like, what should I have done? Like I'm out here like trying to practice loving kindness and 
not safe. And Deepama, the story goes, said, with, um, you're in, they're in Calcutta. She said, you know, you, did you have your umbrella with you? Like it's raining half of the time. And she said, yeah, I had my umbrella. She said, well, if that ever happens with all of the, ever happens again, or with all of the loving kindness that you can muster, take your umbrella and smack him in the face. <laughs> like self-defense, like, you know, like you don't have to, you don't even have to hate him to just be like, get the fuck away from me. Protect, you know, like, Buddhism is, and I might be going on a tangent that wasn't part of the question, but maybe, uh, Buddhism is uh, nonviolent. But I believe that there's a level of self-defense that is not violent. When you're in a situation where you may be assaulted, that there's a level of physical self-defense that uh, is not an act of violence. And there's a line between hitting them in the face with your umbrella or push, you know, whatever it is, and stopping the attack. But then there's the anger, there's the rage where you're like, well, I'm now I'm gonna stab you with this umbrella 17 times. <laughs> and that's, that's a line, I don't know, 17's in my head. That's a right. There's a line between the the defending, the stopping, the now I'm sa I'm safe again. I'm hurt, but I'm safe again. But now I want to hurt you, and then it's no longer self-defense; it's violence. we're not really safe, but we should try to stay safe. We're not probably going to be able to meet everything with compassion, but we should try. And using some caution around uh, environments we put ourselves in. If we can, if we have the privilege to be able to choose and not, and I think that's part of where the question is coming from is like, what about when we don't and we just, it's just dangerous right outside my door. So there's that level of loving kindness as much as we can. And then also kind of, please, yeah. But I also kind of feel like I also, it's like having compassion for that individual as well. Like I'm feeling unsafe because I've witnessed things that would cause me to feel unsafe. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, that in, I also get angry at myself at times because I'm feeling angry and resentful when I feel like there's also room for compassion there also. Because they're doing these things, or I just just because I can't relate to living that life because those aren't my choices that brought me or circumstances that brought me to that experience. But yet I still have compassion because I'm also seeing the suffering or my perception of their suffering in front of me. And so 
that's just, it's like, it's just a kind of just like an ongoing question for myself right now because of, you know, the circumstances of where I, my home is and, and just the proximity of people who don't have a contemporary home like I do. They're living in either tents or, you know, sidewalks or wherever right now. Could you hear the comment at home or should I repeat it? No, couldn't hear it. Um, about that line between uh, anger, fear, judgment, and um, knowing, right, the Buddhist superego that says you should be more compassionate. <laughs> You're not being a very good Buddhist to these unfortunate folks. But they're suffering. So compassion is, compassion's the right answer, always. Loving kindness, compassion, forgiveness is the right answer, is our practice. And then there's the humility we were talking about last week, but I can't do it all of the time, but I'm going to keep trying. And then we're going to get angry and afraid. And But compassion doesn't mean... Uh, compassion means caring, not necessarily caretaking. Mm. Compassion means there's ultimately in true compassion, there's no attachment for it to be different than it is. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Compassion is I care about your pain. I don't have to take it away. Equanimity. Equanimity. I heard a Tibetan teacher say, I remember the first time I heard it and I thought, this is awesome. He said, make sure that, uh, that you're practicing true compassion and not idiot compassion, not codependency, caretaking. That having been said, I don't wanna to go too far on the equanimity. When we can help and be of service and facilitate change, we're responsible to do that too. It's an act of generosity, an act of kindness, of karmic purification, we should help when we can help but there's those levels of like don't suffer about our inability to end houselessness or you know suffer at the people who are in that circumstance chosen or whatever i want to spend we only have a few a few more minutes i want to move on to this other question that i'm Hesitant to talk about because I don't think I'm very good at it, but I want to try to talk about it anyways. Um, about um, navigating this last year and some months of having been in a uh, group experience, a whole planetary experience on some level or another of um, social isolation, distancing, um, having lived through this pandemic. And I'm not saying it's over, it's very much still here in so many ways, um, but the world was kind of closed, especially, you know, are depending on where you live to varying degrees. And uh, many of us 
Many people had quite a bit of time alone, um, no physical contact, no, uh, not much social contact, all of it behind the screens um, for, for many people, not seeing anybody except for through uh, screen communication. And, and what Judy was talking about earlier around the loneliness, I know how, how much loneliness there was for some people, how much um, kind of boredom, you know, like you watched everything on Netflix already, like you, you won Netflix and um, got bored. And, and there's a level, the one thing I, I did this when we were going in, I said, you know, I feel fortunate that as a, a Buddhist who's done a lot of silent meditation retreats that I feel like they prepared me for this. I've, you know, I've, I feel so grateful that I've spent all of these months and months in silence and in non-eye contact and in non-connection and not, you know, that like I learned how to be alone. And most people have never done that and don't know how to do that. And this is going to be very difficult for people. And I'm a very social person. I live my life in communities and in connection. And I'm always doing something with somebody. And I was like, oh, I'm going to have to, except for when I'm going on retreat. <laughs> but I had that training. And so on some level, and this, for some of us, it was like this forced retreat experience. A whole bunch of people were like, I didn't sign up for a socially isolated experience, but I'm forced into it. And then, you, you know, each of you reflecting on uh, some people really fucking liked it. And we're like, this is great. Nobody's fucking with me. I don't have to go to work. I don't have to drive. Some introverts were like, this is fucking heaven. But those who really enjoyed it are suffering now going like, what do you mean it's over? I have to, I have to talk to humans. I have to go back outside. How many people are coming to meditation tonight? This was, you know, three, there was only 10 people here three weeks ago. That was safe. Now there's 20, it's not safe anymore. This is overwhelming. And, um, and you know, again, it's, I felt like it's so hard to talk about because some people were like, this totally sucked. I hated it. I felt so alone, so lonely. And I'm so relieved that finally we're coming out of it some and we're out and about and we're connecting and we can come back to our meetings and our meditation groups and work and, uh, restaurants and all of the things. So it's hard to address this to, uh, you know, a large group of people because there's so many different experiences that you're coming with. Coming out of silent meditation retreat, we often uh, warn people like, you're in more of an altered state than you think. You've been in this and you've sort of normalized to this experience. 
and you think I'm cool, but you've been silent and sitting and walking and you're more concentrated than you think and you're more internal than you think and uh, driving might be more challenging than you, you know, you've been in neutral <laughs> for however long, three days or a week or several weeks. And, and now you have to go on the freeway and you need to go 60 miles per hour. And for some of you, you're going to be like, this is awesome. And you're going to love it, the intensity of it. And it's, it's going to be somewhat intense. And some of you are going to feel overwhelmed. And so an encouragement to not, uh, also after retreat, to not, if possible, don't go right back to work. Take a day or two to reintegrate. Take your time. Um, don't check your email, all of it right at once. <laughs> and, you know, you've got 200 things that you got to do and the urgency. Titrate it. Take your time. Do a little bit. Pull back. Do a little bit. Pull back. And so, I mean, that's my main thought about the reintegration is uh, take your time. Do some. Pull back a little bit engage, pull back a little bit. If you're really clinging to the uh, isolation, push yourself to step out a little bit. It's, you know, it's, we are social creatures. We, uh, especially if you're practicing Buddhism, Sangha community, uh, it's part of our practice actually to get together, to have, communication. And I know we have this technology where like, I'm fucking doing it right here from my living room. I don't ever want to leave again, getting everything delivered. This is great. But I, 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 I don't know, maybe that's fine. You know, I mean, the Buddha, it's hard to draw on ancient Buddhist teachings because he didn't have this kind of technology, what I will say is that he intentionally, it's thought that the rule for the monks and nuns not being able to keep any food overnight was an intentional rule so that you had to go and make contact with other people every single day. That it was to force connection. And so that you didn't get to stay home and just order takeout for six months. <laughs> or, you know, you weren't allowed in the original kind of formulation of the Buddha's Sangha, the uh, monastic system anyways, um, you weren't allowed to go and live in a cave and bring all of your food. You had to, you could live in a cave, but you had to be able to go to a village nearby and beg for lunch every day or not eat. You couldn't keep the food overnight. Only what was offered to you for that meal. That's all. And, you know, the monks and nuns continue on some level to live by that rule. No snacks. No uh, saving the leftovers. Just what is given to them in their bowl that day. One meal, one main meal a day. That's it. Was there a hand? 
Yeah, yeah please. Um, one thing that I really loved about the pandemic was my life pre-pandemic was not working for me. And I worked before the pandemic for my whole life up because I can hate it and scrap it all. And I got really comfortable with failure <laughs> during the pandemic, which is something for me what was really hard. And I reevaluated my friendships and realized on some level how lucky I am to have the people that I have and have some relationships aren't serving either of them anymore and it's time to let them go. And just that shifting, it's it's kind of like, you know, whenever whenever there's a big change like that, I just I imagine like a volcano coming up and it just disrupts everything. Then eventually you have, you know, Hawaii. And it'll be really nice. So that's kind of what I think the pandemic really was for me at least, was, you know, just and and kind of culturally like this assignment, we, our life is not like the way we're living things is not working anymore. We need to do something completely different because it's just not working. We're all dying from it now. So let's figure it out. And that was kind of cool. <clears throat> and like my friends that didn't have to go to work actually got to spend time with their children and like see their like their kids as who they are. Like um, some of my friends, they started doing like making board games with their kids. Like that's they get they played every board game they possibly play. Now they make them, and like you know, I just noticed that like a lot of people I know are going back into like a maker state, and like you know, not so much like I'm gonna buy every single thing off the shelf right now. Like oh, I want to make soap, or I want to like make this little thing. I want to cook with my friends, or you know. Other people like volunteering to you know deliver meals to elderly people that can't afford to like get out or have things like I don't know I just the the amount of compassion in the community that I'm in they're just really overwhelming and just how lovely my friends were to one another that was really cool I'm kind of glad I did my life up like right before that because then I really just got to see you now I got to sit and see everything happen and also be comfortable with things that I am not cool with yeah. And, not that bad. I just die. I'm, I'm okay. You know, I don't know. It's an interesting mind shift for me. Yeah. I think a lot of us have um, some positive reflections on this experience, uh, especially those of us who are looking at everything that happens as an opportunity for growth, for healing, for waking up. And so, and that has been my encouragement the whole time of like, this is an opportunity. And coming out of it is also an opportunity. And that it's the whole thing that it's all, it's all I'm interested in. And I, it's why I love Buddhism so much is because it's, it's this whole frame of like, how do we use everything that happens inside us, our own minds? our own bodies, sickness, aging, death, all of our communications, right speech, right action, to respond in a way to the realities that we experience, including pandemics and all of the political stuff that's going on. And uh, how do we develop compassion and wisdom and embody it? And so, so many opportunities to see that happening and to be doing it, to be part of it from the inside out.
that's enough for tonight. It's about nine o'clock. Um, I'll continue with some of the other questions next week. Two down, 27 to go. <laughs> Sorry if I didn't get to your questions or comments. Class is done by donation. Uh, we, we, we request a 15 to $20 donation. Um, there's a, a bowl there. Tara's sitting at the desk. If you'd like to donate, um, please do. If you're online, there's a link in the chat that Jeff and Emily have posted. Thank you so much, Jeff and Emily, for uh, co-hosting and, and working the door here for me. Appreciate you guys. And everybody, appreciate everybody for coming out and practicing together. And um, if you feel moved to on the website, there's a um, section where you can become a monthly supporter where you say, I want to be part of this thing. I want to support against the stream um, by dedicating a certain amount as a kind of recurring billing monthly donation. So please consider doing that if you're not already. And if you can and want to, please do that. And um, Do I have any announcements? I don't think so. Um, David, you want to say something? David's doing he, renting the space. He's a friend of mine. It's not an against the stream class, but he's um, he's a, a, a teacher, Dharma teacher. You want to say something to the local people about what you're doing on Tuesday nights? Hey, everybody, um, David. I have a class here on Tuesday nights. It's called Meditation and Living. Um, my lineage comes from, it's a yoga lineage of meditation as opposed to the Buddhist lineage of meditation. Goodbye, people um, at home. So it's coming more from that. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.